Good afternoon. Welcome to our third CMS dispute talk. We are uh, dealing in this session with the potential exposure of directors uh, and officers to liability claims uh, following the COVID-19 emergency. We noted in the past months, and unfortunately we foresee in the next months, an increase of litigation uh, against companies and directors uh, brought by employees third parties, shareholders, investors, clients, related to the COVID pandemic disaster. The insurance industry has been heavily affected by the increasing number of claims and disputes on coverage are also increasing. We are going to discuss these issues with our panelists and see which are the main critical areas and which are the potential remedies. Our panelists uh, that I introduce with pleasure are Alessandro Bollino, CEO of Share Underwriters. Alessandro has a long experience in the insurance industry. Virginie Crema, uh, who is leading the insurance practice uh, at CMS Belgium, and Zakir Mohamed, who is head of corporate investigations and forensic at CMS uh, South Africa. So, Alessandro, maybe you can start introducing your topic. Yes, thank you, Laura. In the beginning of the COVID crisis, so which is the beginning of 2020, uh, much of the attention concerning insurance coverages related to COVID-19 uh, has been uh, drawn by business interruption coverages. Those were the first one who has been triggered by insured uh, uh, in order to uh, face the loss of revenues and profits uh, and also uh, extra expense to continue to resume operations. Uh, even though these type of coverages will still be, uh, unfortunately, on the scenario, for the, for the future, and we have seen already happening here in the United States, I'm in New York right now, um, uh, there's a lot of uh, other type of claims, which will be the topic of, um, of my presentation, uh, which will be mostly the, uh, the DNO-related uh, uh, claims uh, related to, to COVID-19 again. Uh, we, know, we all know that DNO policies typically cover a broad range of wrongful acts in connection with the management of a company, including uh, claims against individual directors or officers and a business judgment decision. Of course, when there is a disruptive event like the COVID-19 uh, that nobody obviously expected, uh, that is the time when managers normally take decisions, and the decisions can be wrong or can be judged as wrong by some of the stakeholders. And that's where uh, um, uh, DNO policies start to trigger and becomes uh, very relevant. Um, in uh, broadly speaking, we could identify uh, uh, six categories of claims that could be um, six areas, more than categories of claims that could be be happening regarding DNO policies. 
One is uh, mm, very important, all the claims related to financial reporting obligation or public statements about a company response to the pandemic. And we will see also some examples of claims in that area already. Another category is the antitrust uh, um, uh, lawsuits related to to try to management trying to respond to the crisis with practice which are can be considered illegal like price fixing or or other similar um practices that uh try to um uh, to, uh, to to be a reaction to the to the covid uh, business crisis third category are all regulatory investigations in in america here the, uh, by the fsa by the sec i'm sorry or by other authorities like the fsa in uk or in other in other countries uh, regarding reporting and disclosure requirements unfair trade practices uh, accounting issues and all those uh, regulatory uh, areas where a crisis normally has uh, uh, as a, as a strong impact because obviously uh, uh, companies try to react to the crisis, uh, taking extra expenses or or, or, or not uh, not having enough revenues as before, and so all this has to be accurately, of course, represented and reflected in the in all the disclosure statements, especially for public companies. And uh, failing to do so, it's a it's a significant opportunity for a claim. Uh, the, the fourth category uh, is claims in case of bankruptcy. This is another big area, which normally tends to be a little later, but uh, we've seen it in America already happening significantly and also in Europe. So claims by creditors, trustees, shareholders, and other stakeholders involved in a bankruptcy. Uh, bankruptcy, of course, related to COVID-19. Finally, and we will have a special uh, session about this, are cyber-related claims. Claims. This is uh, indirectly uh, related to COVID, but we have seen already examples where COVID, the COVID crisis, has triggered some of the cyber-related claims because uh, of the the theme is the smart working and the and the working offsite by many employees. That has opened the door to uh, to a, a sharp increase in cyber-related claims, and also this can be uh, can be or not covered by insurance uh, DNO policies. And so there could be a direct responsibility of boards or managers in this handling on this situation. In general, uh, there are two points of attention, and I will try to uh, discuss a little bit in the next minutes. Uh, one, it, it, when facing a crisis like the COVID crisis, one is to try to be aware from both from an insured point of view and from an insurance company point of view on the restrictive interpretation that can be done uh, in the in the language of the wording of the policy. Uh, because, of course, nobody uh, for, uh, had foreseen a crisis like COVID. And so uh, now we're trying to adapt a wording that was thought for other events, and now we're trying to apply to, to a big event like COVID. And so a restrictive interpretation could affect the uh, rejection or the acceptance of a claim, of course. So this is a very important point. 
to be uh, to be aware of. The second point of attention that I would like to emphasize is the renewals of the of the policies. This is a more an underwriting theme, less than a claim theme, but it is very important for for who is connected to this seminar, to the web, webinar, and it's on the renewal side because renewal are due in the next month, and it's uh, we have seen already in the in, in our brokerage activity. The companies tries to uh, better phrase or to exclude some of the events related to COVID, and so this is a topic that should be on the table when we talk about renewal. Uh, in general, the 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 I just gonna do a list right now of points that are important in in when uh, when dealing with these two points of attention I just mentioned. One is the bodily injury ex exclusion, uh, which is probably next slide, please. Uh, it's bodily injury exclusion, which tend to be enforced by company. While it is, I mean, the, the specific wording of the policy should be carefully analyzed because COVID, it is a health-related issue, but not necessarily it is excluded. Uh, actually, most of the cases is not excluded by DNO policies from the point of view of bodily injury. The other point is uh, the insured versus insured exclusion, which applies much frequently in public companies, where a lot of stakeholders are involved in a potential DNO lawsuit. Then there is the pollution catastrophe uh, exclusion, which uh, it could be triggered, depending again on the word, by some insurance policies. And this, again, has, has to be analyzed uh, carefully in the wording of the specific policies. And finally, from a practical point of view from the insurer, is the potential duties uh, owed under all policies conditions, because this is always a general rule that in a case like this is very important to be careful on what the, the duties are in order to uh, uh, be able, I mean, to be sure that a, a, an exclusion doesn't trigger from that point of view. Uh, finally, just last minute on my uh, in my presentation, I would like to illustrate three examples of claims that we are dealing with already in the United States regarding claims. Uh, one is uh, uh, is has been uh, a lawsuit has been uh, uh, filed on March 12, so early early stage by a, a, a cruise line based in California. Uh, uh, that uh, has been sued by mm, a series of these uh, objects uh, 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 to a class action because of the communication, the public statements they they said about COVID. They said that uh, basically uh, 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 to the all the health procedures procedures were top class and there was no danger for passengers and crew members. And that revealed to be false, and so now there's a, a significant class action uh, uh, against this uh, cruise line. Uh, second uh, interesting case is a pharmaceutical company, one which is in the uh, forefront of the mm, vaccine development. Uh, this company is also being invited in the White House for. Uh, what, uh, the, the presentation of their the results. Uh, the, uh, they have um, mm, uh, communicated to the public that that uh, 
uh, were, uh, in short, they were being very optimistic about the availability of a test and of a, of a, of a vaccine, and that has not been sub, 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 substantiated by facts. So uh, um, here, uh, uh, this has been filed on March 12 in Pennsylvania, a lawsuit, and this is uh, uh, by an investor because the uh, the, the stock price went down, and uh, so the investors sued the company. Uh, the third and uh, last case is a technology company that deals with uh, uh, um, video conferences that, uh, due to sharp increase in their use, uh, this is the, one of the most famous video conferences uh, companies, has been sued by uh, uh, investors again because of uh, not having completely filed all the security information that they needed. So these are the three examples very interesting that we see here. I've seen here already in the United States. There are many more, but these are very famous cases and very interesting. So this concludes my presentation. Thank you. Thank you, Alessandro. Um, I would like to mention that all our attendees uh, are on mute, so it's not possible to intervene to ask questions. Nevertheless, it's possible through the chat to pose questions, and at the end of the presentation, our speakers will be glad to answer to the questions you would like to, to pose. I would now... Um, Ask Zakir, uh, which other risks can you envisage during this COVID-19 pandemic? Thank you very much, Lara. Good afternoon, everyone. So this COVID pandemic has created the perfect storm for various organizational risks. And the risks that I will talk about at a high level are the commercial crime risks that an organization may face during this pandemic. What has happened from the beginning of the year with various lockdowns in jurisdictions throughout the world is that companies have at very short notice had to adjust their businesses in many respects with a lot of employees having to work remotely. Um, the COVID pandemic has also resulted in some organizations having to scale down on some of the operations in certain respects. Some organizations have had to look at issues such as potential salary reductions um, and that sort of thing to try and main, maintain the sustainability of that business. And those are some of the key factors that creates the perfect storm for commercial crime risks. And in my, in my presentation, I'll talk about fraud risk, but I, it encompasses all commercial crime risks. Now, who poses these risks to an organization? Now, commercial crime risks are posed by an organization's suppliers, by their business partners, by their employees, and by unknown third parties as well. Now, of these three individuals, who would pose the biggest risk to an organization? And one would have to say that whilst your employees are your greatest asset, they can also be your greatest liability as they pose a substantial organizational risk to your organization. An example of this would be to think of a Trojan horse. If somebody wants access to your company's assets, um, or if somebody wants to steal certain company information, how would they get a hold of that information? Um, and one way would be through potential corruption with employees, or it could be um, an employee perpetrating the fraud, etc. So it's important to manage employee risk as well. Then the risk also comes from unknown third parties. And Alessandro had mentioned um, the risk of cybersecurity claims. And cybercrime is a growing pandemic globally. 
Um, it's affecting organizations and individuals throughout the world. Um, and cyber criminals are becoming more and more robust um, in perpetrating their particular crime, that, that, that particular kind of crime. So when it comes to these kind of risks, what behavior would one think of that drives this particular kind of risk? Now, when it comes to commercial crime risks, a well-known criminologist in 1953 came up with what we refer to in the forensics uh, industry as the fraud triangle. And the fraud triangle consists of three elements. The first one is motivation or pressure. The second one is opportunity. And the third one is rationalization. And if you break down these three elements, the first one that I referred to was uh, motivation or pressure. Now, when we speak of motivation, what is the motivating factor behind somebody doing this? And this would be an individual's personal circumstances. So it could be financial pressure. If somebody's got a significant amount of debts, it could be the rise in medical bills. Um, it could be um, potentially a gambling addiction, etc. But when you deal with the COVID pandemic, one would think that financial pressure is something that is affecting many individuals throughout the world and businesses as well. A lot of businesses are trying to keep afloat and keep their businesses sustainable. A lot of individuals working for organizations in particular where they may have taken a salary deduction may feel some sort of financial pressure. And that meets the first element. The second one is opportunity. And that is a very important element of the fraud triangle. When one speaks of opportunity, one is essentially speaking of a system weakness or weakness in an internal control. So basically something in the organization or something in the business that allows the fraudster to perpetrate the fraud. So it could be many things. It could be a lack of segregation of duties. It could be a breakdown of internal controls in the finance function. So pre-COVID, for example, there may have been certain systems in the organization when processing payments through the finance function. Now at very short notice, an organization now has its entire finance team working remotely. Um, and this has had to happen at um, very short notice at times. Um, and that may or may not have resulted in um, a breakdown in internal controls. Um, so that is where a risk area is created. And that is what we speak of when we speak of opportunity. And the third one, or the third element of the fraud triangle that we speak of is rationalization. Now that refers to the state of mind um, of the particular uh, perpetrator of, of, a, of a commercial crime. And what we speak of rationalization, an example of rationalization could be that I've worked for my organization for many, many years. Um, and so I deserve to get extra money out of the company. And if the company is not going to pay me the money, then this is something I must maybe take for myself. Or it could be that my manager earns massive bonuses and I don't earn enough. So let me do that uh, and perpetrate a commercial crime. From third parties, it could be that for example, you know what, I need to survive. And so I'm going to do everything that I can do to make sure that I can be financially stable and get the money from wherever I can. And in the case of cyber criminals, it's often motivated by greed um, and, and financial well-being. And cyber criminals often perpetrate this crime as their business. So whilst we run our legitimate businesses, etc., cyber criminals often function um, like dark businesses. Um, they are incredibly sophisticated in perpetrating this crime. They do it every day. It's in the nature of their work, so to speak. Um, and so they're incredibly sophisticated and their rationalization would be, well, greed. I'm going to take it if I can. If, if an organization systems are weak, so be it. 
I will get the information that I want or I will misappropriate the funds in whatever way I can and perpetrate that particular crime. So that's the kind of behavior that would drive the increase in fraud risk. And what is particularly important for, for us to highlight today is the second element that I spoke of, um, and that is opportunity. And that is what I will end off um, my section of the presentation on when I speak of preventative measures. Now, what are some of the key fraud risks that an organization may face? Now, these are varied. These are varied when we talk of commercial crimes. Commercial crimes themselves vary. So we've got traditional fraud. We've got the misappropriation of company assets. We've got bribery and corruption. We've got money laundering. Um, and we've got um, other crimes as well. We've got cybercrime. We've got data breaches as well. So these, these risks are varied and every organization is faced with these particular risks. And it's important to have measures in place to mitigate these risks. Now, when we talk, when we talk of the risk of cybercrime, traditionally we were used to having our businesses function in an office building. We had our secure networks. We knew that our employees were potentially working with desktops and they were, they were plugged into a secure network. They were using our company's IT infrastructure and so we were, we were quite secure um, in our IT infrastructure. Now at very short notice with lockdown starting, um, what, what, what has happened is a lot of employees have had to work remotely. And so now they're not physically on site. A lot of employees are working through their laptops. How sure are we about the Wi-Fi networks that they may be using? Are employees using secure Wi-Fi networks um, to carry out company business and to access company information? Um, are employees using their own personal devices to do work. Now, for example, if you issue an employee with a work laptop, you would know that you've installed the relevant software to prevent cybercrime from happening. You've, you've got the relevant cybersecurity tools installed um, to mitigate it against the risk of cybercrime. But if an employee is using a personal device to do work, what do you, are you sure that they have the same levels of protection that you would have on company assets? Um, and those, those are things that need to be considered when it comes to cybercrime risk. What I've seen in the last couple of months is a significant rise in cybercrime, cybercrime attacks on individuals and organizations. Now, historically, over the last few years, I've always reported that there is an increase in cybercrime. But with people being so vulnerable during this COVID pandemic, this, uh, this rise has spiked considerably where cybercriminals are attacking individuals and organizations on both fronts. Um, this morning alone, I've had a client contact me because they received a phishing email. Now, phishing email, um, as some of you may know, is an email that is received by an individual where the sender of the email asks you to click on a particular link in the email. And what happens is if you click on the link, they will install malicious software onto your computer and through that, they will hack into your company's systems. Now with the COVID pandemic, what is happening is these attacks, these cyber criminals are becoming quite smart. They're creating a sense of urgency. Um, last week, we had a cyber criminal um, basically send an urgent email that required urgent attention and an urgent response. But to get the information to respond to the email, you needed to click on a link. Now, when we see the word urgent, we immediately want to action something and we throw caution out of the wind. So that's very important for us to be aware of. Um, so cybercrime is one massive risk that organizations need to be cognizant of during this particular pandemic. Because to curb cybercrime, it's not just about having the tools. So for example, the secure networks, et cetera, but it's also about employee awareness.
Then the second risk um, that an organization needs to be aware of is the risk of bribery. Now, this will come from two fronts. One needs to be wary that one's sales team uh, may be at risk of incidents of bribery or corruption for the pressure of trying to meet sales targets or bringing business in. Um, and so that is where your bribery risk comes in. One also needs to look at your procurement function because that creates a risk as well. Um, now, emergency procurement, when you're trying to procure goods or services from a supplier on an urgent basis, it creates a risk because, again, in a situation of urgency, one would um, ordinarily want to action the things and then the controls go out of the window. Then the other risk that organizations need to look at is the misappropriation of physical assets. Businesses don't have the same level of physical traffic that they used to have um, pre-COVID. Um, a lot of our offices may have a limited number of employees, so it's important to be wary that confidential documents should not be lying around offices. They should be kept secure. Then the other risk that an organization needs to look at is corporate social investment fraud. Now, with the COVID pandemic, there may be a lot of fake organizations out there looking for funding from individuals and organizations. And it's important to vet who you are donating money to uh, as part of your co corporate social investment initiatives. So these are just some of the risks that I've highlighted. Um, I could talk about these risks for hours and hours on end, but it's important for me to just highlight the big ones so that you're aware of them. Um, and most importantly, I must conclude with some tips on how you can manage the risk. Now, I've scared you by making you aware of these risks, but it's important for us to be cognizant of those risks. But I'd like to leave you with a glimmer of hope that there is stuff that we as organizations can do to mitigate the risks. The first thing to do is assess your business, do a risk assessment on your organization and try and identify where all of your risk areas are. Now, I've mentioned some of the commercial crime risks that your organization could face. Look at your finance function, look at your HR function, look at your IT function in particular, look at your procurement function, as well as other areas of business, and look at what the commercial crime risks in those areas of your business would be. Once you are able to do that, you would identify where your higher risk areas are. Once you've identified what are your high risks, you can focus your priority on mitigating the risks in those areas first, and then implementing measures to mitigate the commercial crime risks in those areas. So a risk assessment is, in, is incredibly important. Um, another thing is to look at your internal controls in your business to make sure that even though you've got employees working remotely, you are able to monitor the effectiveness of the way they are working, um, and you are able to ensure that whilst they are working remotely, they are that the risk of cybercrime attacks is, and, and the misappropriation of funds is mitigated as well. Um, another important thing is employee awareness training. It's important to constantly remind your employees that these risks are live risks. Now, in my daily job, I deal with fraud in forensics, I investigate these instances, so fraud is always top of mind for me. But in the nature of your business, you're focusing on other business issues, and so one might forget that the risk of cybercrime attacks is live, and it's important to send out email communications and potentially training slots to your employees, just making them aware of what to look out for when it comes to these particular risks so that you can mitigate the risk of your organization falling victim to commercial crime. I wish I could have spoken to you about commercial crime for much, much longer, but I really do hope that this was helpful in, in helping you identify some of the risks that your organization may face and giving you some handy tips on what you can do to try and mitigate some of those risks. Thank you very much, everyone, and I'll hand over to Laura. 
Thank you, Zakit. Very interesting, very interesting to note that given the nature of this pandemic event, uh, uh, we can see that we, uh, all, all the um, countries uh, are facing very similar uh, problems. Uh, um, I would like to understand from Virginie, uh, who is based in Europe, uh, while Alessandro is based in the States, uh, and Zakir in South Africa, uh, which are the, the trends, uh, and if you see any difference uh, or particular issues uh, related to the European countries. I think that the examples given by Alessandro and Zakir, they speak for themselves. And we can clearly detect an evolution in DNO landscape. I'm a lawyer that is only qualified in Belgium, and I can only speak about the legal framework in Belgium. But as soon as we start discussing with other jurisdictions, uh, European jurisdictions, but also much broader than that, uh, when we discuss about DNO liability, everybody agrees that there is this evolution everywhere, and uh, it shouldn't surprise that there is an increased risk of DNO liability, uh, and that this increased risk is always linked to two main things. Firstly, is the regulatory framework that is changing, um, and mostly um, this is the same for a lot of countries everywhere. It's just a question of which country first and then the others they follow. Uh, so there's the regulatory framework and secondly, there's the economic circumstances. And of course, I don't have to tell you that COVID-19 has a big, big, big impact on the economic circumstances and that therefore we already see an increase in DNO liability claims. Um, but we also expect it to be much higher in the next few months and years. So if we look at the two main uh, things, uh, the regulatory framework and the economic circumstances, let's start with regulatory framework. Um, when legislative initiatives are being taken to increase, for example, data protection, and companies risk very high penalties for contraventions of such leg legislations, well, it goes without saying that a, a correct data protection policy is on the high priority list for directors and officers. In many countries, the legislative framework to increase possibilities to file claims against directors and officers is also increased. Think about class action and the evolution in legislations all over the world. Think about um, bankruptcy legislation that is also in, in, in evolution. And you see the increased possibilities of bankruptcy receivers um, to, 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 uh, to claim against uh, directors and officers if they didn't behave carefully in the management of uh, the company that was in financial distress. So the regulatory framework and the legislation um, that is being adopted in countries um, has a very, very big impact on uh, DNO liability. Second uh, big impact is, of course, economic um, circumstances. Uh, when an economic crisis is being expected or ongoing, uh, more companies are in financial difficulties. We have, of course, a closer look at the behavior of directors and officers. Third parties suffer damages because of the behavior of 
directors and officers will seek for another estate and they will request indemnification. They will look at others that are in the same situation and investigate whether class actions are possible. So there is really an increased risk if the companies themselves don't go well. And the same is true for cybersecurity. Huh? Let's have a look at a, a, a company, for example, facing a serious cyber incident. The company's directors have not taken any preventive measures and they did not subscribe to uh, a cyber insurance um, that could potentially, of course, lead to DNO liability. But when such claim is really initiated, but such claim is in, 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 in reality, the, the risk of claims against DNOs is really only there when the directors and officers, they, 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 they have a separate estate. So this is often only the case if an incident causes serious financial disruption or distress in a company. Because if a cyber incident occurs and there is no real issue with the financial situation of the company, there is no real impact, there is no real damage, then you don't see those claims arising. There is no insurance, or if um, the company due to the cyber incident is really in financial distress, then you see the DNO claims popping up. Why? Because the estate of the company itself is suffering, and you have a real incentive for third parties or even shareholders of a company to start claiming from the directors. So the economical circumstances and this, the financial situation of a company is also key uh, in uh, the trend of the increase of DNO claims. If we now uh, turn to the next uh, slide, uh, um, we have a look at a piece of theory for such liability. And I think I can speak for other countries too here. Uh, you could know I'm only qualified in Belgium. But I think uh, we, we can have a broader look and we can have this piece of theory um, in, in a much broader sense than that only when looking at, at, at Belgium. But who has that risk of potentially receiving a DNO claim? On what basis can they receive claims and towards whom? That is what you see on that slide. And I think that this is really generally applicable in uh, many, many, many countries all over the world. Firstly, um, there is often a misunderstanding, but let's be clear, not only officially appointed directors can face DNO liability. What do I mean? We often get questions um, from people that are in fact only factually leading the business, but they do not have any official mandate as director. Well, then in many countries and in most of them, you're considered to be a factual director you can still be held responsible as a director, as an officer, by third parties, by the company, uh, because you have that responsibility. So it's not because you don't have the official stamp of director of a company that you cannot face this uh, DNO liability. So whenever you have a responsible role within a company, it is possible that you have to be careful and that you have that risk of being held personally liable um, because of undue behavior. That's the first thing you should be uh, aware of. Secondly, um, what are the basis for such claims? Huh? 
um, basis for such claims are both on, on the basis of civil law. Directors are considered to have a contract with the company they work for. They are mandated by the company. So any liability between those two would be treated as um, a contractual liability. And that is civil law, of course. We should know that third parties um, who do not have that contract with a director can, all, can also claim, also have a possibility to claim from directors and officers because they can suffer damages because of the bad behavior of that director leading the company. Um, and that is then based on tort law, which is the other aspect of civil law. That's the first possibility to claim from um, directors and officers. Another possibility is, of course, criminal. And in big companies in financial distress, both often go hand in hand. You often see civil and criminal claims against um, officers and directors in once. If you look at, for example, some, 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 some major Belgian cases, uh, and the people who are attending and that live in Belgium, uh, they, they will all be very aware of the two examples that I will give right now. But so Belgian media have covered high-stake DNO claims um, when criminal charges have been put on key figures of major companies. And one of the biggest cases concerned the CEO of a bankrupt Optima bank and who was arrested in 2017 and who has been charged with misuse of corporate assets money laundering, breaches of banking regulations, those are all criminal, um, criminal um, uh, misbehaviors. And so that CEO has been pursued both on the basis of criminal law and, of course, also by the trustees of the bankrupt Optima Bank um, on the basis of civil law. More recently, you have another one who covered the newspaper every, every single day in Belgium, and that's the CEO of the listed fashion group FMG, uh, also known uh, as, as Brantano. Uh, Dieter Pennings was arrested by Belgian police on charges of fraud. Uh, um, the, the, the claims are the claims against him is that uh, there was a misrepresentation of the annual accounts, and there are criminal offenses. Uh, this is a criminal offense too, and so both. Um, both arrests were made shortly after that the, the companies filed for bankruptcy or judicial reorganization. And this demonstrates that um, the added liability risks for directors of companies in difficulty face. So I think that um, uh, companies in distress have a much, much higher risk for uh, directors and officers' liability, meaning that as soon as you feel that a company is really facing big risks and that is suffering from the COVID-19 pandemic and might not be able to overcome the financial distress, I think it is very, very important for directors and officers to be extra careful with the way they manage a company and uh, certainly not to try to continue the activities if it's very clear, very clear, uh, um, that uh, it is not possible 
to save the company. Because if you continue to run a company um, when you know that activities are in fact not um, able to be monitored anymore or to be continued anymore, then you can face um, severe liabilities as a director in Belgium. And I think that in other uh, countries that is exactly the same. So be careful with um, running um, financial companies, sorry, in uh, financial distress. The third thing that I want to say about this slide is um, claims can come from everywhere. Huh? Um, they can come from the company itself with whom the director and officer have a, a contract and they receive a mandate uh, to manage the company. Um, so this is a possibility and often this is not possible anymore after they receive discharge for their mandate and that is, that is often something that is done annually. Uh, a claim can also come from third parties. Think about shareholders that can um, that can claim directly from directors. Um, they can also um, start a class action um, together. You have creditors of a company in financial distress that say, "Look, you you have made a mistake. You have misbehaved." and you have um, caused the difficulties in the companies or you did not manage them in a correct way. And um, I think that you as a director, you should be held liable because of the financial difficulties of that company. And that means that um, because of that, my invoice is not paid. And um, if you had done better, my invoice would have been paid. So I'm claiming the invoice from you as a director. That's a possibility too. And of course, you have the bankruptcy receiver and tax administrations who often have own basis in legislation to directly turn towards directors. So if directors receive mandates in companies, um, Belgian companies, Dutch companies, Luxembourg companies, French companies, wherever they are situated, please also have a closer look at um, specific liability grounds um, for bankruptcy receivers, for tax administrations, for uh, social security administrations, uh, because there are in every legislation specific bankruptcy specific grounds to claim um, from directors. And I can speak about that for, for three hours. I don't think that this is the idea of this seminar, but it's important to, um, to get informed and as a company to inform your directors um, carefully about uh, the obligations that they have and the, pot the potential liability grounds that um, they have. That was it for uh, the bit of theory. Um, we can switch to slide three for um, some, some, some takeaways. Uh, how should directors and officers protect themselves? Um, a few takeaways, a few thoughts. Um, I think that Zaki already mentioned a very, very important one that is not mentioned on this slide, uh, but, but, but as soon as a director is mandated in a company, it is so important to have a look at um, the company profile. What are the activities? What are the big risks of uh, my company? And what should I put on the high priority list of uh, risk? And um, how will I deal with these? And I think that's a very, very important takeaway that Zakir uh, gave in, uh, in his, um, in his uh, comments. A few others here. Uh, we often get questions should we be aware of everything that happens in my company? Because I have a company and I'm leading it, but I have uh, thousands of um, uh, people working for that company. I can't be aware of everything. How, how, how should I protect 
myself against any liability claims for things that I am not aware of? The answer is, of course, no, you should not be aware of everything. But again, it's the same as what Zakir was saying. Check the big risks and the big risks, follow them up. Make sure that you, get, that you have good people in place that can delegate um, uh, to good people that can make sure that those risks are monitored in a correct way. You have the obligation as a director to install a good delegation system that enables you to monitor the functioning of a company. If anything goes wrong, you will not necessarily be held liable. But the question when you talk about liability of directors and officers will mostly be, did the directors behave carefully? Would a director placed in the same circumstances have have been able to prevent that or not? If you have a look at that, would, would, would you say that that director made a mistake, for example, by giving a high-risk area in a company to somebody who was not qualified at all to tackle the risk? Then I would say, yes, as a director, you didn't behave carefully. But if you made sure that you, if you made sure that you have put in place a good delegation system that you have monitored and checked the risk of the company very well and you appointed people that uh, were qualified to deal with those risks in a good way and you make sure that those people report to you uh, as director um, in a correct way, then I don't think that a director faces any um, risk of receiving uh, claims. Maybe he, he has a risk of receiving them, but I don't think that there is a real risk of being held liable in the end. So that's a very, very important um, takeaway. Um, make sure that you have a good delegation system in place, that you have a good reporting system about high risks in the company, and make sure that if you ask somebody else whether you behave carefully, that the answer is yes. He behaved carefully. And as long as you do that, I don't think that the risk is very high to be held liable. First takeaway. Second takeaway, um, protect yourself, of course. Um, it's also important, I think, uh, that, that companies, um, when you know that there is an increased risk um, of, of, of DNO claims, make sure that there is a DNO coverage. Uh, DNO insurances are really market practice. So um, even in smaller companies, um, now they start to realize that DNO insurance is important and that um, directors can be protected by um, um, a good structured DNO policies. Uh, because sometimes the legal framework does not accept uh, hold harmless guarantees uh, from companies to their directors. Eh? Because before, the, before DNO insurances became market practice, what you often see, saw and still see, but less than before, are guarantees from the company. So I appoint you as a director, and if anything happens or you are held liable as a director, I will take care of uh, the financial consequences of your liability. So you can ask me to pay your, um, your, your liability claim. In the new 
Belgian legislative um, framework, you can't do that anymore. So it's not possible anymore. A mother company can company itself cannot do that anymore. And secondly, if the company goes bankrupt or it is in financial distress, it doesn't protect the director. So we you know insurance coverage is really market practice, and um, we 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 would always advise companies to seek uh, you know coverage uh, for their directors. Another takeaway is maybe um, employment laws. Huh? In many jurisdictions, employment agreements offer protection against claims from third parties, but this is very specifically regulated in different uh, jurisdictions. If you take the example of Belgium, for example, um, you cannot claim from an employee of a company except in case of fraud or willful misconduct, gross error or repeated small errors. Outside of these, uh, these, 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 these potential direct claims against employees, you can never as a third party claim against an employee of a company. So certain mandates could be protected by not providing them with a management agreement, but rather with an employment agreement. In Belgium, a director cannot have um, an employment agreement, but for example, a daily manager, typically a CEO, could have an employment agreement and there he would receive that natural protection that comes from uh, the legislation. That, so that is maybe also a takeaway to have a closer look at how do we structure um, our management uh, in order to protect them in a good way. And I'm very aware that um, the choice between management agreements and employment agreement is not always related to how do I protect my directors against claims, but also in respect of tax and structuring of their, their, their private estates, of course, but it could be a thought um, that is discussed there. And maybe to conclude and to, 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 to give the possibilities to, um, to ask some questions to the public, um, to conclude, I think I would like to say DNO is always in evolution. And the best tips that we can give as lawyers is that as soon as we have a mandate within a company or taking care of the factual management of a company, take that, take that mandate seriously. Be aware of your responsibilities. Make sure that you behave as you would accept people to behave when they deal with your children responsibly and carefully. Taking into account the specific circumstances, I think that that's very, very important. I would like to ask Alessandro, considering uh, what Virginie said about the importance uh, of having in place uh, a good DNO uh, insurance policy, which is of course just a remedy because the, the idea, in the ideal world the best is prevent uh, any, any potential claim, but in any case uh, uh, it is a good compliance rule for directors uh, to uh, be sure that they have in place uh, a good insurance policy, uh, which is, in your view, the possible reaction uh, of the insurance industry? Because for the insurance industry, this could be a huge disaster. Uh, probably they are facing the, the most difficult uh, event uh, in the past uh, 30, 40 years. So, what do you think uh, will be the possible reaction? Uh, insurers uh, are willing to, to protect uh, their insured 
to keep uh, a good commercial relationship with companies uh, or they are trying to escape uh, from their liabilities because maybe they are a bit scared about the, the potential uh, uh, consequences of these uh, events. Yes, um, I think there will be two uh, type of reactions from insurer. Uh, one will be in during a claim, and the other one is in, in the occasion of a renewal of the policy. And uh, I've seen both already happening. In in the case of claims, they do try uh, is uh, in many cases to apply those exclusions that. Uh, I have tried to uh, quickly highlight in my presentations, uh, which is uh, th that uh, it's very difficult to give a general uh, uh, advice on that because it strongly depends on the wording of the policy. But normally, the uh, insur insurance company uh, try to apply, I would say, like a sensible uh, approach, like if, if the exclusion is clearly stated in the policy, they will definitely apply uh, and will not cover the claim. If, uh, if it's not clearly, they will not put the relationship with the client at risk and we will not, uh, and will not uh, apply the exclusion. Uh, but mostly, the most important reaction I've seen is during the... Um, the renewal at the end of the year, because I've seen already, or in the new on the new policies, I've seen already uh, significant pressures on the maximum amount of the insured uh, that, the, that the policy covers, especially for public companies. Uh, insurance companies are not willing to cover very very large amounts anymore in the policy. And second is the additional information in which time what Virginie was saying, which is very important, they, in, they installing the good decision-making process. Because insurance companies want to know um, that this is in place. I mean, they're very interested to know. So they ask, normally in the DNO policy, now a supplement on questionnaires about the decision-making process to be sure that the management uh, has in place all the checks and balance to be sure that the decisions are carefully taken by the management and uh, that somebody is responsible of that. So this is the two type of reaction I see. Thank you. Uh, Virginie and Zakir, I'm picking up uh, a question for you. Uh, what would you advise uh, with regard uh, to mitigate uh, fraud risk and eventual coverage of the damages? Uh, seeing the exclusion of willful intent in insurance and most agreements? So on my side, I think, I think for me, what's, what's particularly important when you're dealing with fraud and crisis risk management is, on the one hand, we've spoken about the fact that you should have internal controls and measures in place in your organization. The one thing that I did not mention, and it's critically important, it's it's well and good to have all of that, but it's also critically important to have an effective incident response plan because what you do when you are faced with a particular incident of fraud um, is very, very important, in particular when it comes to your relationship with your insurers. Um, and in that respect, you need, to, you need to make sure that there's no panic because often when, we dealt, when, we face, when we're faced with a fraudulent situation, there's panic and we don't know what to do, et cetera. So it's important to have a plan in place to say that if this happens in my organization, who are the people 
that I need to call. So would I call my legal team? Would I call my IT team? Would I call my risk team? Would I call my compliance officer, etc.? So understand the core team that is going to deal with the issue. Then you also need to look at your insurance contract as well and see if there's any notification requirements to your insurer to make sure that you notify your insurer in time. Um, and then you need to plan very effectively how you're going to deal with that incident. So you can't just shotgun approach it. You need to deal with it sort of in a planned manner. So you need to understand the issue that you're dealing with and deal with it in terms of your incident response plan. I think from um, an insurance perspective, I think, Virginia, you were, you were going to say something. Yeah, um, I would like to add that um, there's a, an important difference to make um, in the willful intent. Where is the willful intent? Because uh, what what companies are often confronted with in uh, in, in, in in fraud and uh, cyber uh, risks is that employees are not dealing in a proper way with uh, something, and they are committing fraud. But that is that is typically something that would be covered. So the willful intent and the fraud of employees would typically be covered. And I think that that is effectively the high risk. Because if you're looking at, for example, a, a DNO policy and um, the, the, the director, the officer themselves are committing willful intent, then it's quite normal, in my view, that they are covered by the policy. But when you're looking at cyber policy, then uh, the, if the issue arises from within the company and there is fraud or willful misintent from an employee, then it remains covered. I don't know whether Alessandro wants to add or Laura wants to add, but I think that that's the big difference is employee fraud and uh, fraud on behalf of the, 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 the director. Thank you, everybody, for attending this uh, session. I would like to remind you that we have uh, a, a last uh, webinar which will be held on October 28th, Real Property Commercial Lease and COVID-19. So I would like to thank our panelists, uh, Alessandro Bollino, Virginie Frema and Zakir Mohamed. Uh, for attending the session and explaining which is the situation and possible uh, remedies to the risks. And I thank you all the attendees uh, for uh, participating in this uh, event. So thank you.